Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Seminar 17 begins with a bang, a conceptual bang, multiple conceptual bangs. The text we're looking at, Seminar 17, Standard English Translation, starts with a bit of a story. And it's an interesting story, especially if you've seen our series on Seminar 16. If you've read Seminar 16, you can see Lacan kind of struggling with his positionality as a teacher of Lacanian psychoanalysis, although he himself, of course, is Freudian. Is he the analyst when he steps up to the mic? Is he the university when he steps up to the mic? At the start of chapter one in seminar 17, you see him struggling with this, and I would suggest in this little anecdote about the person who catches him before he gets in a cab, what you see is Lacan playing the position of the university. But that's not what I want to talk with you about. Not yet, at least. It's these opening pages with their conceptual bangs. I'm thinking pages 13 to 15, page 19 through 20, and then he's into the master's discourse, a little introduction to these discourses. But those pages have a lot of conceptual things happening. It would be great, as always, if Lacan would just slow down and spell everything out. He does not. For those of you that were present for our series on Seminar 16, a lot of this is already familiar to you. You can see the S1s, the S2s, these fundamental relations, the presuppositional logic of the subject, even jouissance, jouissance of the other relative to knowledge. There is a lot here that you already know. Now, if you don't, you can always go back and view our series on Seminar 16. It's readily available. What I want to do to start, though, before we dip into this text, is back up. And not just back up to Seminar 16. I want to back up even further to the early 1960s. And I want to suggest that Lacan's thought in the 1960s begins and ends with a single crystalline definition of the signifier. Now, there's a lot happening for Lacan in the 1960s. It's a terrific period in his thought. But his understanding of the signifier is a very important element here. Yes, you see Lacan shifting from the symbolic to the real in a broad sense in the 1960s. But part of what enables that shift is a very crystallized understanding of the signifier. You see it first really popping in the subversion of the subject essay in the early 1960s. Notice how Lacan puts this. My definition of the signifier, there is no other, is as follows. A signifier is what represents the subject to another signifier. 
Now reading ahead into the late 60s, looking at seminar 16, you know that this fundamental hypothesis, a signifier is what represents the subject to another signifier, carries forward and can hold a significant amount of conceptual weight. I want to slow down, though, and start with this early foundational pronouncement of this definition and see what types of insights we can build ramping up to the opening pages of Seminar 17. Now, hearing this hypothesis, this definition of the signifier, there is no other, Lacan says. In our series on 16, we went over this thoroughly, radicalizing it, and developed a topology, a topology of the subject. One in which you see an S1 over a barred subject with the S1 pointing to an S2. It looks something like this. The signifier is what represents the subject to another signifier. Now, if you've got eyes to see, you can already see the rudiments of the master's discourse, which is where Lacan begins seminar 17. The signifiers represents the subject to another signifier becomes the master addressing the slave in a position of knowledge, forcing them to produce something, perhaps a loss, perhaps a gain in the field of surplus, that the master can then consume, annihilate, without ever experiencing desire if the slave does their job, all the while allowing the master to deny that they are in fact a barred subject. Now, we're not there yet. Right now, what I want to do is back up to the foundational topology of the subject that you can build from Lacan's definition of the signifier, this three-footed animal, as he calls it, that will then give you the basic structure of discourse for Lacan in Seminar 17. So as always in Lectures on Lacan, our goal is clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. And that oftentimes means we have to back up a little bit in order to make sense and ramp up to the insights with which Lacan begins here, Seminar 17, because he just hits the ground running which is cool, which is great. But for us, we have to earn that every time. And usually that means taking a step back. So taking a step back deep into the early 1960s, when Lacan comes up with this famous definition of the signifier, this early pronouncement in the subversion of the subject essay, we see three basic elements. One signifier, another signifier, and a subject, an S1, an S2, and a little dollar sign looking thing that we know as the barred or split subject. The other signifier to which a signifier represents a subject is at first equivalent for Lacan to the battery of signifiers known as the big other, known as the symbolic, known as capital A. So early in the 1960s, this S2 hasn't quite emerged yet. What we have instead is the big A that you see in the lower right-hand quadrant of the graph of desire, developed famously in the same essay that we're considering now, the subversion of the subject essay. This other signifier to which some signifier represents the subject is the battery of signifiers, or Lacan's thought, when he, when he starts this um, formulation. 
And yet, the signifier that represents the subject to this battery, because it exists in differential relation to it, stands outside this battery. And that's part and parcel of what we want to get at here. It's the basic definition of language, discourse, and signifierness for Lacan, is that there is a differential relation between two signifiers. At a base minimum, there have to be two. Now, where two or more have gathered, there's always a third. We'll come to that later. But for now, what he's saying is, there are two signifiers working here. There is the signifier that represents the subject, and then there's this battery of signifiers to which that signifier does its representing. Now, it's more complicated than that. We're starting basic, we're starting foundational. Before Lacan has S2, he has big A. As a battery of signifiers, as the locus of signifiers, you probably all know this very well as the symbolic. And yet again, there's this other signifier, the signifier that represents the subject to this battery. It would subsequently become an S1, which we'll talk about. Here, though, Lacan has a different way of representing it. This signifier that represents the subject and stands outside, to some extent, the battery of signifiers to which it does its representing, here, in Lacan's early 1960s formulation of the signifier, he writes it as a signifier of the barred other. And you've seen this symbol before. It's a capital S and then in parens next to it a capital A with a line through it. Here, you're no longer in the bottom right-hand quadrant of the graph of desire, but in the upper left-hand quadrant of the graph of desire. So before Lacan has an S1, he has an understanding of some signifier that signals a lack in the big A battery of signifiers that would subsequently become known as S2. It's a signifier that exists in subtracted relation to this battery of signifiers known as capital A. It's the signifier that shows that the capital A is in fact the barred A because there's always one signifier doing signifying things that is excised from, that is subtracted from, that bores a hole into and occupies that space itself, the big other. This signifier that is subtracted from the big other is a signifier of the fact that the big other is incomplete, lacking, in other words, not the big other, but a barred other. And that's what we see as Lacan's thoughts develops in the 1960s, into Seminar 14, into Seminar 16, and so forth, is that the big other gives way to a barred other. And then something more, because note the title of Seminar 16, from a big other to the little o other. This business about the big other, 1950s Lacan. Great stuff, good things for helping him develop his understanding of the symbolic and of language. But by the time we get to the subversion of the subject essay, Lacan is developing and revising his thought around the big other, such that the big other is always revealed to be a barred 
big other, if you will. You've heard of the big bad wolf. Lacan's got the big barred other. And that's what's at stake here. Instead of an S1 and an S2, in the typical formula, the topology of the subject, what we see is a signifier of lack in the other that is somehow linking up with this battery of signifiers traditionally known as the big other. At this point in Lacan's thought, he is unwilling to allow this odd, unpronounceable, subtracted signifier to exist outside the battery of signifiers he knows as capital A, namely the symbolic. Here's what he says in the subversion of the subject essay. Check it out. The signifier of the barred big other, of the lack in the big other, he says it marks the inherence of a negative one, parens negative one, in the set of signifiers known as the big other, the symbolic language. It exists as a negative one within the field of the other, within the field known as the symbolic. And here's the basic paradox, at least at this point in Lacan's thought. The signifier that represents the subject to another signifier is simultaneously apart from, and yet paradoxically also a part of, the battery of signifiers to which it represents the subject. Now, if you've ever studied the rhetoric of exemplarity, if you've ever studied how examples actually work in discourse, like when someone, for instance, says, for instance, in a sentence, and when someone cites an example, as in, this is an example of a pen, this is not really a paradox at all. This is how examples work. They are ex schemere, they are cut out from, a category of entities or events that they highlight. They step outside the category in order to illustrate the category itself. And at the same time, their illustrative capacity is premised on their fittingness within that category. So this is a pen. It belongs in the category in which all pens exist. But to make it an illustration, an example, it has to step outside that category of pens. This is part of what it means when, in the Greek tradition, you have understanding of the example as paradi paradigm or paradigma. The paradigm is something that shows alongside paradigma. It shows alongside a category of entities. So if I invite you to note a coffee cup, for instance. This is a coffee cup that illustrates and stands alongside, apart from the very category of cups to which it belongs. But by citing it as an example, I cut it out from that group, that class, and I bring it forward. Pick your entity. Giraffes, water bottles, pens, you name it. And you can work this apart from and a part of logic out. It's etymologically written into all the basic terms we have, for example. A paradigm, again, a showing alongside from the Greek. If you prefer your Latin, the exemplum, the example from ex chimere, something that is out ex and then schimere cut to cut. It's cut out from. This is the work of the example. 
Anyway, you can check my stuff on this if you're curious about the example. The reason why I'm queuing it up is that this signifier of lack in the other is a curiously exemplary signifier. And if you've seen our series on Seminar 16, you know that fastening that S1 down is a tricky topic and fully one that is worthy of our attention even now at the start of Seminar 17. Let's try and be precise. This signifier of lack in the other that would eventually become the S1 in the topology of the subject marks an inner extimate limit. I don't want it to be something that is outside the big other. I agree with Lacan here. We need to understand it as a parens negative one, wandering errantly through the field of the symbolic. There is no outside text, if you like your Derrida instead of your Lacan on this point. There are, however, inner limits within any given text. Navels, dead zones impossible voids, or as Lacan tells us at the end of seminar 16, empty sets. This is precisely, again, what he's doing with set theory in the late 1960s. The reason why he likes set theory in seminar 16 is because in set theory after Cantor, we have an understanding of the set that is always multiple. In other words, oneness is not where we begin. Oneness is an effect. Instead, you have collections, and within every collection, within every set, there is an empty set, a void point, typically symbolized by an O with a slash through it. There are other ways to symbolize the empty set in mathematics, but that's the one that Lacan latches onto. The empty set in every set is going to be objea. I'm not going to rehearse all this. You can watch the final few lectures in our series on Seminar 16, and I work through all these details. The point I want to make here, though, is that that parens negative one in the big other, in the battery of signifiers, that would eventually become the empty set in Lacan's thought when he starts bringing mathematics, precisely set theory, into his work. At the core of a big other there is always this empty set, this void point. Again, you can check it out on your own. The point I want to get at here is that it marks an inner extimate limit at the core of a big other that by this very fact can only ever be barred. Because in other words, there is a hole or an opening that cannot be accounted for within the field of the big other. It can't be the big other as a totalizing operation. And yet at the same time, that's precisely what allows it to stake its claim on being the big other. Because nothing has been left unaccounted for. You've heard me riff on that before, so I'll leave it alone. But here, check it out. Notice how Lacan concludes his thought in the subversion of the subject essay, this thought that we've been riffing on here at the start of our series on Seminar 17. This estimate, impossible signifier, this negative one, symbolized by the signifier of the lack in the other that you see in the upper left-hand quadrant of the graph of desire, that wanders errantly through the symbolic is, according to Lacan, unpronounceable. You heard me say that earlier too. But then Lacan adds this. 
This signifier is unpronounceable, but its operation is not. For the latter is what occurs whenever a proper name is pronounced. So Lacan's given us a clue here, and it's a clue that we would run with in our series on Seminar 16 for illustrative purposes. He says if you want to understand the signifier of lack in the other that would become the signifier of the S1 that represents the subject to another signifier, he says you need only consider how proper names function. This signifier of lack in the other may be unpronounceable because it is voided out at the level of the symbolic, but its operation is visible, and in Lacan's case here, audible, whenever you hear somebody tell you what their name is. So whenever I tell you my name, Sam, the operation of this negative one around which the symbolic is structured can be seen at work. This is Lacan's wager. Now, many of you already know where I'm headed here. Here is the origin of the proper name logics that gave us the second and third diagrams in our recent series on Seminar 16. You can go back, check out the diagrams, and you can see how we developed this all out of working through the logic of a proper name. Now, all this has worked out in our series on 16, so I'm not going to fuck with it too much. I'm going to trust that you can go back and review it on your own time. And trust that you'll already be a little familiar with these diagrams to such a point that I can be a little brief, precise, and categorical here. Between the big other, the battery of signifiers, capital A, and this signifier of lack in the big other, in the subversion of the subject essay, between these two understandings of signifiers, one that represents the subject and then another set of signifiers to which that representing occurs. The signifier of lack in the other, and the other to which that signifier connects. Here, you see the origin of the three-footed animal with which Lacan begins Seminar 17. And you'll note, he wants to add, he says, why don't we, why don't we just add a fourth foot? And that's where he decides to put objea. We'll come to that. For now, though, we've got a three-footed animal. Here is our three-footed animal. The signifier of lack in the other is going to become the S1, and the big other is going to give way to an S2. We're going to talk about how these things link up. The signifier represents the subject to another signifier. This topology of the subject, in which Lacan refigures the signifier of the lack in the other as S1, and the battery of signifiers that sustains this lack, whether this lack appears as a negative one, the empty set, or any other Lacanian formulation, this is the one that he was going to designate as S2. This is our starting place, and it starts with this topology, this topology of the subject we often refer to it as. What I want us to note here at the start of our series on Seminar 17 is the origin of this topology in terms that are not S1 and not S2. But right here in this core essay in Lacan's thought, the subversion of the subject essay, where he gives us the first great pronouncement of his definition of the signifier that's going to carry forward all the way up to and including Seminar 17, which is where we're headed. Why am I queuing all this up 
why not just jump right in to seminar 17? I'm queuing this up for you right now. Even though we've already detailed, developed, and I dare say even radicalized this topology in our series on seminar 16. Because again, it's here in this basic topology of the subject premised on the definition of a signifier as that which represents the subject to another signifier. It's here in this basic topology that again, we see the origin of the first discourse in Lacan's four discourses in Seminar 17, namely the Master's Discourse. And that's where we're headed, whether we're going to get there in this lecture or not. But the goal here is the Master's Discourse. And in this basic topology of the subject, you can see the origin. And you can also see the origin of this topology in Lacan's basic definition of the signifier. Let's continue with some review here. Some review that I think is going to further help us in navigating the opening pages of Seminar 17. What is language to Lacan? However else this term has been defined by Lacanians, the truth is this. Language for Lacan amounts to a differential system of signifiers. Now, I've been over this in our previous series, so I'm not going to spend too much time in it. But this differential system of signifiers known as language is crucial to understanding what Lacan is doing with S1 and S2 at the start of Seminar 17, throughout Seminar 16, and in early prototypical talk in the subversion of the subject essay. The differential part is quite important here. At a minimum, the differential system of signifiers known as language has to have two elements. Now, if you follow the series, you know that where two or more have gathered, there is always a third. One plus one equals three. So hold that in mind. The two minimum elements that we're talking about here form a binary logic, not because dichotomous, but because binary involving two, comprised of two elements, S1 and S2. These are signifiers, and foremost, what Lacan is doing when he lays out the S1 and the S2 is to say, this is the minimum amount of signifiers that you have to have in order to have something like a language. Now, any given language is going to have S1, S2, S3, it's going to go on and on and on. But what Lacan is doing here is he's saying at a base minimum, you have to have an S1 and an S2. Now, the third element which you've heard me discuss, is the differential relation between S1 and S2, typically symbolized in Lacanian thought by objea. It's the minimum irreducible difference between, in this case, two signifiers that allows them to remain distinct. We can bracket that thought for now, since we've spent so much time working through it in previous series, and just focus on the differential relation between S1 and S2, this minimum binary structure that you have to have in order to have language. Why? Why is two the minimum number of signifiers that you have to have? It's simple. Signifiers cannot signify themselves. Now, that in and of itself doesn't tell you anything, right? 
In fact, in Seminar 16, Lacan's like, I can't even believe that no one has ever come to this insight before. Signifiers cannot signify themselves. He says that's implicit in his definition of the signifier as that which represents a subject to another signifier. He's right. He's precisely right. Signifiers cannot signify themselves. So, if you look up cat in the dictionary, you are not going to see behind the colon after the word cat another imprinting of the word cat. If you look up any word in a dictionary, you're not going to see the same word listed as the definition of the word. Cat is not defined as cat when you look it up in Webster's Dictionary. Signifiers cannot signify themselves. Instead, when you look up cat in the dictionary, what you see are a bunch of other signifiers, different signifiers. Signifiers whose differential relation to the one you looked up is precisely what gives the one you looked up meaning. Cat. I look up cat in the dictionary and it says a furry, four-legged feline. All right. Each of those words, furry, four-legged, feline, is a word that you can look up in the dictionary. It is not equal to cat. Cat does not equal furry. Cat does not equal four-legged. Cat does not, you see what I'm saying? Furry, four-legged, and feline are words that if you looked up in the dictionary are going to be defined with other signifiers still. This is Lacan's point. The meaning of any given signifier is dependent on its differential relation to a series of other signifiers that do not equal the one you looked up, but are necessarily connected to the one you looked up in order for the one to have meaning. Choose any word, play around with the dictionary, you'll see exactly how this classic example unfolds. Here's the point. Every language, like language as such, Every specific language, name your language, like language itself, is a web or a network of differential relations between signifying elements. And here's what I would add. We've been emphasizing the differential part of all this. If you've seen our previous series where we talk about language, let me just back up to seminar 16. I think there's some riffs in there on that. These relations are stable. Lacan even emphasizes this at the start of Seminar 17, as we'll see, that there is a stable series of relations. What stabilizes these differential relations between differing signifiers is iterability. It's the fact that the definition of cat as furry four-legged feline gets repeated over and over again. So what you have here in Lacan's understanding of language, is not just an emphasis on the differential relation between the signifying elements, between the words that go into a language, but the repetitive structure, the repetitive necessity that has to be in place in order for these relations to be stabilized and in order for meaning to cohere. These relations are stable however differential they may be, because they are also iterative. Now you can see 
why Lacan was so interested in Deleuze's early works. Notably, Deleuze's thoughts on difference and repetition. These are the two pistons of Lacan's philosophy of language. And arguably any reasonable and well-thought-out robust theory of language is going to have a rigorous account of each of these phenomena. The way that signifiers rely on differential relations for meaning and the way that meanings rely on the iterability, the recursive nature of these relations in order for that meaning to hold. doesn't mean that the meaning stays forever because alternate usages of certain terms can allow that meaning to shift. This is one of the basic definitions of a living language. A dead language is one that nobody speaks. And the reason why it's dead is because nobody speaks it. And because nobody speaks it, the language does not evolve. It doesn't change. Friend used to be a noun. And then in the 1990s, it started to become a verb. To friend was something you could do to someone. You could friend another person. In a way that most English usage at that point struggled with. That was an alternate usage. And so what you see here is a great opportunity to study difference and repetition together. Friend repeated some of the elements of the nounal structure of the of, of friend, but then at the same time when it gets extended outward into the verb of friending somebody, you see a different use and a use that would eventually catch on. In fact, I used to know the guy, or one of the folks, that Webster's would call up whenever there was a new edition of the dictionary. You maybe have heard me talk about him before, Bob Hass, poet laureate living out in Berkeley. Haven't spoken to him in a long time, but I remember him telling me once that the dictionary straight up called him. Now, let's be clear. The dictionary didn't call nobody. Dictionaries don't walk around. The editors of the dictionary called my man and said, is friend a verb? And they cut him a fat check for the poet laureate of the United States to sit down and decide whether that should be included in the next edition of the dictionary as a verb, in addition to being a noun. Languages evolve like this. Lacan's point is that the structure of their evolution is premised on a relationship between difference and repetition. So don't get it twisted. Yes, language for Lacan is a differential system of signifiers. But the way that meaning coheres and continues and evolves in a living language requires this other element known as repetition. So it's a differential and iterative system of signifiers. That's how we understand language in Lacan. Now, you heard me a few minutes ago cue up this difference between language as such and a specific identifiable language. This is really important to what Lacan is up to in the 1960s with language and the signifier. Language as such is like the big other. It's strictly virtual. Technically speaking, that shit don't exist. Language as such is like a Kantian idea. Not an ideal, an idea. Like God, like equality, like justice. 
None of those ideas exist. They can provide maxims for conduct, right? You can have an idea of justice and equality that helps you make decisions on what to do, I don't know, in court, in the street, and so forth. But equality and justice don't exist. Ain't no equality out there walking around knocking on people's doors. Justice doesn't exist, which is precisely why in front of courthouses, right, you have to have statues of Dame Justice, blindfolded, holding the scales and all this kind of shit. You have to have these concrete, literally, embodiments of justice because justice doesn't exist. Technically speaking, it has no existence because it is simply an idea and nothing more. In Lacan's thought, you see this well represented anytime he writes a capital A. This capital A that is the big other, it designates a virtual, non-existent, ideational entity. Language as such is just that. There are specific languages that are spoken, but language as such doesn't exist except at the level of the concept, and even more precisely at the level of the idea. Now, consider a specific, identifiable language. English is the one that you're hearing right now. Any specific language, hear me now, is an excised subset of the virtual structure, the ideational infrastructure, if you like, known as language as such. It is an instantiation of language as such and guided by the same structural logics of difference and repetition. Specific identifiable languages in Lacan's thought are not the big A, but a big barred A. Let's just be simple right now. They are symbolized traditionally in Lacanian psychoanalysis by an S2. The S2 in question, when you see this popping at the start of Seminar 17, when you see this back in Seminar 16, when you read these earlier texts leading up to Seminar 17, S2 is not just knowledge. That ain't right. It's a knowledge, a discourse, a discipline, an other a big other. And because there are many others outside it, many other languages beyond English, it cannot be the big other as a totalizing, collectivizing, all-encompassing entity that the big other purports to be, an absolute container. You can't have that when you're dealing with a specific language because twee is not included in the English language except in subtracted form. All of which is to say that the specific identifiable language you speak is not the big other. It is a big other that because it is exclusive of other languages is also a barred big other. And we symbolize that in Lacan's thought with an S2. The S2s in question are specific subsets of the big other. They are instantiations of it. They are, if you like, examples of it. Let's be categorical. S2 is a specific 
language, discourse, discipline, epistemology, language game, series of family resemblances. It is not the symbolic, my friends, but a symbolic. That's what we mean by S2. So notice that shift from the big other to a big other that is also barred because it is not complete. Here symbolized by S2. Let's see if we can be even more precise. What exactly is S2 relative to the big other? It's an avatar of the big other. A big other which itself is always going to be barred. Now, if you've seen our series on seminar 14 and 16, you know where I'm getting this information. There's the big other as a virtual ideational structure, a logic, if you will. But that shit don't exist. What you have instead are big barred others. And S2s are versions of those big barred others. They are avatars of the big barred other, if you want to play it that way. The big other doesn't exist. Lacan repeats this over and over again in his work in the 1960s. What you have instead are barred others. And these barred others are always incomplete, chomping at the bit for completion, if you will. What else is the OED? What else is everything you ever wanted to know about cooking, but were afraid to ask a master chef? What else are all of these books that provide you with a claim on everything? You've heard me riff on unified theories in the past. This is what we're talking about here. A unified theory of, I don't know, everything. String theory, whatever the hell you want to call it. General theory of relativity. These are all S2s that are attempting to approximate the completion, wholeness, and utter containment that the big other as an idea goads us with. S2 is an avatar of the big other, a big other which can only ever be a barred big other. It is an excised subset of the big barred other. Now I'm moving fast because we've already covered all this. If any of this starts to sound a little wonky or weird to you, just back up, check out the series on Seminar 14, check out the series on Seminar 16. I'm trying to get us into these opening pages of Seminar 17, but always by way of review. S2, it's a discourse, it's a discipline, it's a knowledge. Let's take some examples of this. Consider all the academic programs at a specific university. This is not every single discipline, past, present, and future, that's out there in the world and will be and has been brought to, that would be the big other. The specific set of academic programs at a university is a big barred other because there are disciplines, programs that are not included. You may have a department of kinesiology, but not a department of yoga studies, unlike some other university. You might have communication as a department or a discipline, but your university might not have journalism, or you might have both. My point is that every university 
as a set of academic programs is incomplete and thus a barred other because not every academic program is included there. How about the academic program that hasn't even been existed yet, that hasn't even been invented yet? It doesn't even exist at this point. The big other would also have to include and account for that academic discipline. At your university, at the university down the street from you, in your town, there are many academic programs, but there are not all academic programs. As such, the collection of academic programs at that university is a barred other. Many disciplines, but not all disciplines of all time are included there. Think of S2 as one specific identifiable discipline or department at this particular university. So, most of my work is done at San Francisco State University. We have a department of philosophy. We have a department of biology. We have a department of mathematics. We have a department of communication studies. The barred other here is San Francisco State University. And let me tell you, that other is barred. The S2 in question here would be any given subset of that barred other. So here you would have a department of philosophy. That's one of several, but several disciplines at San Francisco State. And at the level of the disciplinary collection that is San Francisco State University, there would be disciplines not included. Philosophy happens to be one of them, though. It's a specific identifiable subset of the big barred other known as academic programs at San Francisco State University. Moving fast and furious towards the next big concept here. Hear me now. Each of these disciplines, each of these S2s, relies on a host of S1s. Philosophy has a core concept, a special signifier. And it's typically a signifier that philosophers struggle with. Notice how this works. Philosophy as an S2 has as an S1 for it being. Biology as an S2 has a certain signifier that it struggles with, known as life. Mathematics has number. <clears throat> Communication has address, addressivity. It's one of the difficult concepts, core concepts in communication studies. Each of these S2s relies on a host of S1s, being life, number, address, whatever, in its discursive, disciplinary, epistemic work of representing certain subjects, philosophers, biologists, mathematicians, and so on. So the S2 of philosophy has a series of S1s that are core concepts, fuzzy foundations that philosophers perennially struggle with, one of which we've just cited as being. Being is in many ways what represents the philosopher to the discipline of philosophy. You could think of this very simply as it's by engaging in discussions, publishing papers, teaching classes on being, that that signifier marks the teacher or author in question as a member of the discipline known as philosophy. 
The signifier being is what represents the subject to philosophy as a philosopher. You see? It's when the biologist talks about life that life does the work of including that teacher, that talker, within the field of biology, positioning them within the field of biology as a biologist. Mathematician dealing with number. Here's the thing, though. Ask a philosopher to tell you what being is, and you'll see a little trail of smoke coming out of their ears. Ask the biologist to tell you what life is, and you'll see another trail of smoke. One of my favorite things to do with one of my neighbors, he and his partner are both mathematicians, I like to ask him about number. What's a number? Hanging out, playing with his kids. Hey man, what's a number? What's number? What's zero? Mathematicians have a lot of basic concepts that they can explain lots of high-end stuff, but the basic notion of number is one that a lot of mathematicians struggle with, so also with many S2s. They are oftentimes specific signifiers, master signifiers, that an S2 as knowledge, as discipline, as discourse, as disciplinary formation, if you like Foucault, struggles with. We're going to come to this. We're going to unpack each of these elements. I'm moving fast again because I've got my eyes on Seminar 17. The book's sitting right here on my desk. What is the barred subject in all of this? And let's be clear. Lacan's definition of the signifier, there can be no other. <clears throat> this understanding of the barred subject, there can be no other. There's no such thing as a subject that ain't barred. <clears throat> it's an effect structure of this always, already present symbolic field of differential and iterative relations between signifying elements. In other words, between S1s and S2s. In seminar 16, the representation that an S1 does for a subject to an S2 is retroactive. Lacan doesn't really confess this until the final lectures in seminar 16. It's only after S1 links up with S2 that the subject it represents is effected, is in fact represented. Representation for Lacan equals repetition for Lacan equals retroaction for Lacan equals what at the end of seminar 16, just before Seminar 17, he calls retro-efficacy. The subject is a retro-effect of an S1 that has linked up with an S2. Check out our final lectures on Seminar 16 for more on that. This is all by way of review. And really, at, at the... Um, really for those who were not at the series on Seminar 16. If you've already seen the series on 16, you're good to go. But some of you were not. And so I want you to have what we need from that series, crucially, to make sense of where Lacan drops us into the start of Seminar 17. Let's be categorical again. It's only after and atop S1's link to S2 and only through this link, by way of this link, that 
S1 can subsequently do the work of representing or designating a subject. So if you want to see kind of how this would map out, the signifier that represents a subject to another signifier, you first have this connection between S1s and S2s. And then you would have a retroactive representation of the subject. You've seen this type of modeling before, so I won't spend too much time with it. Something interesting happens at the start of Seminar 17. Lacan starts to ask and answer one of those fundamental questions. What is the relationship between the split subject, the barred subject that is effected by the differential system of signifiers known as language, known as the symbolic? What's the relationship between that effect structure known as the subject and whatever the hell it was that we were before we received this effect from the field of language. In Seminar 17, at the start, Lacan gives us a really nice clue here. He says the barred subject, this subject, exists as a mark in or on the living individual. The living being, he says, is the locus where the subject leaves its mark. Page 13. Let's be clear. The subject is not the living being. And it's precisely this non-correspondence, this non-identity, that leaves every representation of one's self, one's sense of self, one's identity, one's subjectivity, lacking, incomplete, and inadequate to the lived, embodied experience of the individual organism. The living individual that Lacan cues up at the start of Seminar 17, on page 13, it always exceeds the barred subject whose mark it sustains. That's a very important part here. The living individual that receives the mark of the split subject is always somehow more than that split subject, in excess of it. What this means is that any representation of the split subject, and that's all the split subject ever is, by the way. It only exists in the field of language as an effect of the field of language that is then received as a mark on a living organism. The living individual is never fully, completely, and adequately represented by the barred subject affected by signifying relations. There's always something more, a remainder, a corporal scrap, a leftover at the level of the living individual for every representation of the subject that the living individual sustains as a mark. That's crucial here. I'm delighted that Lacan cues it up at the very start of Seminar 17. Thanks for listening to Lectures on Lacan. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. 